Here we go, season seven. All aboard. If you missed it, here's what we believe. 66 book canon. We believe in a 66 book canon. There is no more, there is no less. It's 66 books. That Yeshua, who is preached by the apostles in the Gospels and in the epistles, is the only means of salvation, as we are calling Yeshua, means. In other words, justification is by faith alone and not by works that any man should boast. Faith working through love. We are unashamedly Trinitarian. We're also unashamedly uh, doctor, believe in the doctrines of grace, what is commonly referred to as Calvinistic. The, the new covenant is not time-bound. That is to say that the, the horizon of the faith of our father Abraham is no different. Right. No, no, it is not shy of the horizon of our hope and our faith. In other words, that salvation was salvation was the same for Abraham as it is for us. Right. It's Wednesday, December 25th, 2019. This is Messiah Matters number 282. Just another day here at the Torah Resource Office. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me, filling in for Rob Vanhoff, my father and president of TorahResource.com, Tim Hag. How's it going, Dad? Hey, it's going well. Glad to be here. So uh, Rob is off gallivanting around. No, he's got uh, he's had a lot of uh, personal issues that he's been dealing with, and uh, so we've given last week we took the entire week off. This week we are uh, I gave him another week off, and uh, so he said he was remiss to miss the first episode with a new intro, new graphics. The, the graphics aren't new; they just are blue instead of brown, and uh, the first. I suppose we could call this the first episode of season seven, even though technically speaking, it should have been the first week of December. But, you know, details, whatever. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, you can. You can give us a email, chag at torresource.com. It's chag at torresource.com. You can also call our comment line, which is, well, why did my comment line not start? I don't know, 253-465-3205. Let's see if this one started. No? Hmm. All right. I'll figure out my technical issues with those later. Anyway, um, also you can be part of the chat room. It looks like we actually have a small gathering. Uh, it's December 25th, and we got uh, 13 people uh, in our chat room. So welcome to everyone in the chat room. Good to see you. Okay. Um, it's a rare treat to have my father on. I get to uh, I get to talk to him anytime I want in the office here. However, most people do not. Uh, let's before we get started into some of the things that I want to talk about. Uh, we have two new things that I want that we can touch on. We'll save one for later. Let's start with Tor Resource Institute. Classes begin begin on December thirty first. So New Year's Eve is going to be a new uh, winter quarter. Um, Talk about some of the courses that you're teaching and uh, what you're excited to, to look at, at in the new quarter. Well, this quarter, we uh, uh, one of the classes that I have is an introduction to Christology. It's called Messiah Introduction to Christology. I think this is uh, very important for us in terms of what we might refer to as the Torah movement uh, or Messianic, whatever term you want to put on it. Because obviously Yeshua is the cornerstone and the foundation uh, of our faith. And that, as Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 18, that he should receive first place in everything. We, we see in any new or renewed movement, we see this off, uh, also in the uh, history of the Reformation, that there were those who who left the Roman Catholic Church 
but as the Reformation began to gain steam theologically and taught, there were those who kind of uh, split off and had their own way of, of doing things. And uh, we see the same thing happening in, in our so-called movement, in those that are seeking to maintain Torah and very much drawn to historical rabbinics. And then they're having questions about who Yeshua truly is and so forth. So I think this class is very important. What we do is we look um, at scriptures that are the primary scriptures that are talking about Yeshua and his own testimony to himself and so forth and so on, which I think is is, is very important. Of course, we're teaching um, the um, second quarter of Hebrew, uh, biblical Hebrew, as well as the second quarter of Hebrew syntax. At, at Torah Resource Institute, we have the first year of Hebrew, which goes through a grammar book in three quarters. And then the second year of Hebrew, we have two quarters of syntax and one quarter of exegesis. So we're com uh, going on with those. We also have, I'm also teaching a course called um, uh, Differing Worldviews, which is a general introduction to philosophy. But why this is important, and I think uh, many people understand this, but some don't, that we all have some kind of a worldview, which is the means by which, or shall we say the grid, through which we interpret the realities around us. And uh, what I think many people don't understand is that the philosophies that have been perpetrated in the world, they affect us if we don't know what they are, what their foundations are, and where they're heading us. And so it's important for us to have a biblical worldview. And that's what this course is. We look, we read some of the uh, famous philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, and so forth and so on, but um, and even up into the modern world, and we read those and critique these against what the scriptures teach, and help uh, it helps us to form a biblical worldview, which I think is extremely important. And then I'm also teaching uh, an introduction to interpreting the Bible, or introduction to hermeneutics, we call it. And <laughs> here's another place where our movement really needs help because we have people that are using gematria, if you know what that is, that's uh, uh, taking a word and counting the letters in the word in terms of their numerical value, coming up with a total, let's say such and such a word equals, uh, has a total of 25. Then they're finding other words in the Hebrew scriptures, particularly that have the same numerical value, 25, and they're saying, oh, these two must have a similar meaning, similar connection, so forth and so on. For those who uh, listen on a regular basis, uh, obviously you you know Rob's Rob used has uh, used to do a segment called Rob's Gematria, which would take the show number of our show and try to figure out what words, and it was all in good fun, uh, kind of poking fun, if you will. Okay, keep going. Yeah. So at any rate, and you know there's there's this uh, tendency within the movement amongst some of uh, the congregations and teachers to try to wed together the rabbinical literature with the, with the canonical scriptures and try to find a way to make them both fit. And usually what they do is they end up morphing the biblical text to right. fit the rabbinic text. Right. Um, don't get me wrong, there are things we can learn from the rabbinic text, but primarily what we learn from the rabbinic text is what the rabbis believed. And right. we're talking... You know, I don't know, what would we say? We're talking at least 5th, 6th, 7th century uh, that is represented and later in, in the various aspects of the rabbinic literature. So the hermeneutics class helps us to say what are the basic tools of uh, interpreting the scriptures and how do we apply them? And I think that's uh, a very important um, uh, class as well. And then, let's see, did I mention four or five? <laughs> Yeah, the, all of our teachers uh, are teaching quite a quite a load this coming winter quarter. Um, right. I, I, I'll 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 back you up on the plug for uh, uh, Christology. I've actually taken that course twice. I took it once live when my father was teaching it to an audience, and then I took it again at Torah Resource Institute. And I continue to go back to that workbook. Um, there's the final chapter was added later after the uh, original live class which talks about the Trinity, something we're going to get into here in uh, just a second. Before we go on, 
Um, you can sign up for classes at Torah Resource Institute. You can take classes from my father, from Rob, also from uh, one of our new teachers, Andre, um, and also Ariel Berkowitz. Um, if you want to sign up for classes, go to TorahResource.com, and then you can find them in multiple places, but you can uh, go to the Institute, and in the drop-down, you'll find all the courses there. Full list of courses, their prices, and, and uh, payment options as well, and come take a class from my father or from one of the other teachers at Torah Resource Institute. Um, I want to also quickly say two things. These are, we, we took last week off, so this is kind of me tying up loose ends. First of all, I've been getting emails about producer credits. If you uh, want to be an ex- executive producer of this show, um, you need to wait until next week. We will have executive producer credits up, a fresh one for the winter quarter starting in the beginning of January. Um, and actually, pro- yeah, probably right about the beginning of January is where you're going to see those credits come up. So hold tight on those. Also, um, you know, I, th- I don't think I need to say this, but I will anyway. Uh, the comments that are left on the videos uh, for Messiah Matters, we do not necessarily agree or endorse those comments. Um, I try to, to monitor the comments and whatnot, but a lot of the time, you know, um, I just kind of let some of the comments fly because it shows, I think, uh, some of the interesting views of the opposing side. I think oftentimes it actually shows the flaws. Anyway, okay, let's move on. Let's go to a, a topic. Uh, this has been a really hot topic within the Torah movement, uh, the broader Torah movement. Um, I was talking to someone recently, uh, talking about a, a popular teacher who denies the deity of the Messiah. And I said, uh, I said, well, he denies the deity. And this other teacher said to me, no, he doesn't deny the deity. He just denies the Trinity as if that was a consolation prize or, uh, you know, that that was, that was okay. As if denying the deity was one thing that no one should do, but denying the Trinity, oh yeah, of course, just deny the Trinity, that's fine. So uh, I wrote down a couple of my own questions. We've talked a lot recently about uh, the Trinity on this show, We've because my focus of study has moved into some Trinitarian doctrine. Um, we've I put a clip from one of our most recent shows in the new intro to season seven. Um, so this is uh, one of the things I want you to talk about because of your uh, class on Christology. You have a whole chapter in that book on the Trinity. The first question that I wrote down is, why is it we are seeing a significant push against the deity of Yeshua and even more so against the Trinity within certain branches of the Torah movement today and within Christianity? I think the answer to that is is from my experience and from my actually speaking face-to-face with the numbers of leaders, teachers, as well as uh, congregants who are questioning the deity of Yeshua and have denied the Trinity. Having spoken with them, I'm, I've come to the realization that the impetus for this is a desire to be received by the traditional synagogue. And I guess I would have to limit that to say, you know, those that would be considered conservative or orthodox or even ultra-orthodox, those that are the real religious section of Jewish religion today in the world, um, the sticking point is Yeshua. If you want to be received by the Kabod house, for instance, the very Hasidic orthodox uh, Jewish wing of, of the synagogue, you, you're not going to be received by them as long as you openly confess Yeshua to be divine. That's just, now, if, if you want to say that Yeshua is, was uh, a, a very important rabbi and name and so forth, we even see some, uh, or, uh, well, I don't know if they're orthodox, I don't know exactly, but some religious scholars, Jewish scholars, writing books on Jesus these days and talking about his uh, impact upon Judaisms and so forth and so on. So as long as you're willing to say that he's a very important person, a very important figure in the whole history of Judaisms, then okay, that's fine. But if you say he is God, then they say that's pure idolatry. Well, what does the Trinity 
uh, doctrine teach? And usually what I hear people saying is, well, the Trinity doctrine was formulated by the Roman Catholic Church, which if anyone has done any uh, work at all in church history knows that's not the case, because you don't really have the Roman Catholic Church until the 5th century at the earliest, uh, maybe late 4th, but early 5th century. And uh, the whole Trinity uh, issue was very much uh, part of the earlier councils. And so at any rate, what is, you know, I'll just say this about the Trinity in a very brief, I don't want to take too much time here. The Trinity is one of those absolute eternal truths which we confess, but we also say and admit openly, we cannot give a full, uh, what should I say, <laughs> a, a full description of, a satisfying rational description of what it means that three are one. That just doesn't work in our finite system of thinking. And so anytime we try to unravel the Trinity, we're going to ruin it in terms of a doctrine, a biblical doctrine. So, uh, and some people, for some people that's very difficult, but faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not fully understood, which is the way I understand the word seen, not only experienced, but fully understood. So if, if we deny the Trinity, we at the same time undermine the deity of Yeshua. Is he uncreated? Is he without beginning and without end? And this if, is where this is where a lot of the Trinity debates started with the Church Fathers as well, right? What does begotten mean? Is is right. where uh, you know uh, many of the early, before the fourth century Church Fathers they started with Psalm two. Yeah, right, but. The, and this is and the doctrine that you'll read in the theological books, uh, systematic theologies, is the eternal generation of the Son. Right. And the eternal and generation doesn't sounds like an oxymoron, like you can't put those two together. But that's why they put it together, that from all eternity, he was the Son of God and right. had no beginning. Now, why is he then called and referred to in the Holy Scriptures as Son of God? Well... This is a very uh, Semitic, very Hebraic uh, approach to things because a son bears the same uh, being as his father, right? A father is, a, in a human sense, a father is a human being, and the son that he, that he fathers is also a human being. He has the same characteristics in terms of his essential being. So when we say that Yeshua is the Son of God, what, what the scriptures mean by that is he partakes fully of the eternal attributes of the Father, and yet in a way that we can't entirely uh, rationally explain to our satisfaction, so to speak. And that's why it requires faith. Okay, so the, 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 bottom, the bottom line is then, if you deny the Trinity, then you're going to have a great difficulty explaining what you mean when you say that Yeshua is God. Okay, the chat room wants to weigh in here. Um, we'll start with Jeremiah because uh, this is a great question. What about if a believer says they believe in in the deity of Messiah, but the Holy Spirit is just a force or you know the Spirit of God, su such as with the Worldwide Church of God? Well, my answer to that is that, again, we come back to this foundation, which the Reformers referred to in the Latin term sola scriptura. Are the scriptures the basis for our faith? In other words, if we didn't have the Bible, would we be able to believe what we believe? The answer is no. The Bible is the revealed word of God, inspired and therefore true in everything that it states and all that it teaches. Does the Bible indicate that the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, is in fact God in spirit? Yes, absolutely. Does do the scriptures teach uh, in la in language that at least we understand that there is a distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? The answer is yes. Yeshua said, "I will send the Spirit." He didn't say, "I'm going to come." You know, he, he's not referring to himself. He says, "I must leave. I must go." So that but another will, helper, another help, help, yeah. another helper will come. Say, okay, well, what does he mean by that? He means that in the inexplicable reality of eternity, there is a, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, distinct in personhood, yet absolutely one in being and in attributes and so forth. So if we say that the Spirit of God is not distinctly God himself, 
we deny what the scriptures teach. You, you know, you, you have where uh, in Acts there, uh, chapter 6 is it, where he says to Ananias and Sapphira, you know, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, and then, yeah. And then, and, then, and then a few verses later, where is it? Is it Acts? I, I think it's 8. I think it's uh, Acts chapter 8. Oh, we can look it up. But at any rate. And then a few verses later, he says, you have, did, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Well, which, have you lied to the Father? Have you lied to the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. They're one. But why does why is the text make it you know d- that distinction? Um, it looks like you're right. I think it is six. Yeah. Um, so yeah, one of the things I also want to bring up here, and and pretty much let's just wrap up what my what my dad just said. I completely agree. As soon as you start to to chip away at the idea of the Holy Spirit being part of the, I mean, it wasn't a baseless idea. Oh, let's make a third person in the Godhead. The, the the debates around the Trinity were very specific, and uh, many people. This is going to lead into the second question that I uh, was going to pose to you. Which and the second question I was going to pose is, what would you say to someone who says the Trinity was made from the minds of the Church Fathers? I think that this breaks down uh, quite a bit when uh, when some when someone starts to understand the debates that were going on within Judaism before Yeshua comes to Earth. We have the debate over the Logos and the Mamre, that is uh, in Hebrew uh, Logos, or I'm, Greek Logos is, is word, and in Aramaic it's Mamre. Um, so the wisdom of God, the word of God, these kind of things. Judaism was already debating if God was separate, in, if, if his word was separate from him, or uh, distinct from him, those kind of things, and the working of the Holy Spirit. There was also, or uh, there was also debates over the Holy Spirit. There was uh, debates over um, the, the passage in Exodus that says, "No one can see my glory and live." And then we see Yod Hey Vav Hey throughout the uh, throughout the, the scriptures appearing to people. So, what I mean, what do you say to someone who says that the that the Trinity? First of all, we hear this all the time. Oh, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Um, what do you say to someone who says the church, the Trinity was a was a fabrication of the Church Fathers? Well, again, when we come to the Reformation, uh, or well, let's go much earlier. When we come to the the apostles and the forming of the ecclesia that Yeshua promised to build, right? He said, "I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it." Now, that doesn't mean he's starting something new. It seems to me what he's saying there is, "I'm going to." fulfill i am i am fulfilling the promise made to abraham in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed which means when he says i will build my ecclesia it means that to those believing uh, remnant of israel we're going to be added the, the elect from all the nations in over a period of time now when you begin to see this forming of this ecclesia that includes now the elect in in large proportions from the nations you begin to have this issue of how do we explain the multiplicity in personhood of God, and yet that he is the one and only God, because those coming out of the nations are coming with a polytheistic view of things. So you immediately have this issue that goes on, and the apostles are very clear in their writing, as they were born along by the Holy Spirit, according to Peter, right, in his epistle, um, holy men of God spoke as they were born along or carried along by the Holy Spirit, they were given the task of using language that would be both singular and multiplicity when it comes to the Godhead. Right. And that became an issue then in terms of how did, and this was, again, my perspective, uh, I'm not the only one who has it, but it was then the dividing away of the traditional synagogue from the emerging Christian church that brought all of this to a head, and that's far ahead of uh, or before you have something like the Roman Catholic Church or, or those, that kind of thing. The, the question is, how do we formulate this with an increasing number, and shall we say a majority, of Gentile believers coming into uh, this ecclesia, or, uh, which is usually translated church in your Bibles, in your English Bibles. So uh, th- this is where, the, where it comes. And did, were there heretics? Of course there were. 
you have Marcion, my goodness, at the very beginning, you know, early on in the emerging Christian church saying that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the, of the New Testament. Even Tertullian, right? Tertullian uh, took the, the new prophecy and, and ran with it. after That was after his his formation of, of uh, Trinitarian doctrine within his writings. But the point is, is that you, have, you do have these heretical beliefs coming in and out of, of Christianity in the beginning. But, the, but I think one of the main points that needs to be made here is, is once again, that Judaism was already having the, these debates. One of the reasons that John's gospel, uh, that he can talk about the Logos within the first chapter of his, of his work, uh, and, and people know what he's talking about, is because the Logos theology was already being used. And it was being used by people like Philo. Philo uses the Logos theology. Right. Exactly. And th- that brings up another point. Uh, it is that you have the majority of the early church fathers were educated in the Greek academies. And therefore, they were educated in terms of a Greek perspective with regard to um, logic. And you you can't know something to be true until you can go down a path of logic and prove it. Now, that's not the case with the the more ancient Hebraic or Semitic perspective of things. Right. It was presumed in the Semitic world that you would have inexplicable realities that you knew to be true, but and you received them as such without being able to fully explain them. And so you have that collision of a, of a worldview, as I talked about earlier, uh, when we, it's not one is right and the other is wrong, but it means that there, there are weaknesses in both systems unless you just simply say, I rely upon the scriptures, and to rely upon the scriptures is the exercise of faith, and that's that is uh, where we're we're headed. A good analogy of this is Ben asked me. My son, my seven year old, asked me the other day, Dad, why is it that two plus two equals four? <laughs> and my answer was because God ordained it to be so. Yeah. In other words, if God ordained it to be that two plus two equals five, that would have been the answer. But that's not how it is. Um, so we do have a good question in here, Helen, uh, who, uh, yeah, you, you know, Helen, we saw her up in Ontario. Mm -hmm. Helen asks, so, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the actual question in front of me, but her question went something like this. So Yeshua is eternal, but his body was created. And my answer to that is yes, his body was created at conception with, with Mary. In other words, when Mary became pregnant, this is when Yeshua receives a human body. But Yeshua is obviously eternal as we see him show up throughout the scriptures, right? He comes and eats food with Abraham in the in you know in the uh, opening of his tent. Um, we see him uh, I believe that Yeshua is the one who goes through the uh, the uh, um, uh, Egyptian um, town and, and kills the firstborn. Um, I know that that's controversial. But uh, so am I right to say, yes, uh, Yeshua's body was created at uh, conception? I would say that, yes, in, in, in general, did he take on physical form before he was conceived in the womb of Miriam? Yes, he did. That, that's quite clear. Um, in fact, you know, in Daniel, when, uh, when the three are cast into the, the furnace and okay. there's a fourth there and it says he's like the son of uh, son of man and then you have uh, in Daniel 7 you have the son of man who is given a throne in heaven uh, you know you, you you can't you have to put these things together so he he took on physicality in other words there's nothing sinful about physicality per se okay but when sin came into the world it came into the world through Adam and Chava and particularly through Adam, according to Paul, through one man sin entered the world, and then all who related to him also therefore partook of this sinful nature. The question is then, when Yeshua was conceived in the womb of Miriam, did he partake of that sinful nature? And the scriptures are clear, absolutely not, which was the necessity of the virgin birth. You say, well, wait a minute, wasn't Mary a sinner? Yes, she was. But God had ordained and you know, this is all part of, uh, shall we say, a larger systematic theology. The question is, does God deal with and have relationship with humankind through what we would know as covenant? And the answer is yes. And so there is a sense in which he ordained Adam, Adam, 
to be the representative of the human race. And what he did, therefore, accrued to them all. In the same way, he has ordained Yeshua to be the representative of all who are his. So that what he has done accrues to all believers in terms of redemption and so forth and so on. So the other thing is, is that in briefly here in in the before his incarnation, the physical physical form in which he showed up was not necessarily something he regularly uh, that that he had forever. Now we understand that in the in the miracle, in the unbelievable miracle and unfathomable reality of his incarnation, he retains his human body. And he says, as you have seen me go, he says to the disciples, so you will see me return. Okay. Um, I think that uh, we're coming back online here. There we are. Okay. Um, Sorry about that. So uh, there's a lot that's going on in the chat room now. Um, and so I want to, I want to address some of these things. I'm sorry if, uh, we cut any of that out, but let's, uh, let's just see what we can do here. Um, okay. Helen says, so he had a body before conception though, right? And the answer to that is yes. He, oh, well, he takes uh, human form. Yeah. I would say, I, I wouldn't want to use the language. He had a body. That sounds like it was that he always existed in that form. Right. Um, no, he took upon himself physical reality in maybe different, you know, when he shows up at uh, Abraham's tent in uh, Genesis 18, maybe that's different than what he appeared like in the the furnace with, <laughs> with Daniel's friends and so forth. In other words, um, he could take on physicality as the Malach Adonai, as the angel of the Lord. Now, I don't think every time you have angel of the Lord, it is Yeshua. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But there are clearly times when it has to be uh, Yeshua. So uh, because, for instance, in Genesis 18, uh, Abraham refers to him as yod heh vav Right. Oh, so, so actually, that's, yeah. an, that's another question. John uh, says in the chat room, he says, uh, you have to assume much to think that Jesus visited Abraham. Uh, I don't think so at all because we see in 1 John... Um, first John four twelve says no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, right? So John is already talking about, uh, the fact that no one has ever seen God yet. We see in Genesis, yod heh vav comes and sits with Abraham and speaks with Abraham. I don't think that's a, a stretch at all. I don't either. And you have the same thing in John eight. How come the, the Jewish leaders, the, the Pharisees and so forth, how how did they understand what Yeshua was saying? Right. They said, you're making yourself out to be God. Yeah. Before Abraham was, I, I am. am. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, they understood and they took up stones to stone him as a result. Right. Okay. Um, the last question that I have here on the Trinity and, uh, you know, let's, let's just, let's just really hit the hornet's nest. Is the Trinity... A salvation issue. Well, I think <laughs> I think there's the there there is first of all, let's recognize the fact that God's grace and his sovereignty belongs to him fully. Right. Can he save someone who is ignorant in their theology? Yes, he can. Does he know the heart perfectly? Absolutely. Do we know the, the heart and mind of people? No. We know what we see, what we hear, and what we how we interpret it. I think there are maybe those who have a very childlike faith, faith, childlike faith, who simply say, "I believe that Yeshua or Jesus has come, that He died for me, that He rose again, and I am His and He is mine." Is that enough? Yes. If someone comes to them and says, "Well, do you believe that He's Yod Heh in the flesh?" They might say, "Wow, I I haven't thought about it." I don't know for sure. What if nobody ever asked that question? Could they still have genuine faith? I think the answer is yes. To have faith as a child means to have faith in, you know, it's just like when you have all of us, and we had a wonderful time last night celebrating the uh, third night of Hanukkah and uh, with family and, and had uh, my, our, my wife and I, our 
to great-grandchildren and our other grandchildren there. And what a joy just to see these little these little lives coming, uh, growing and becoming aware of things and so forth. Could one of these young children know for sure who they are in the Lord? I just give you quickly my own personal experience. I believe that the Lord saved me when I was five years old. Could I give you a theological argument for the humanity, deity of, of Yeshua? Probably not. Almost likely not. Did I truly believe that he came and died for me, that he rose again, and that I was his? The answer is yes. So I'm always hesitant to say, if you don't believe this, you know. On the other hand, if there are people who have studied this and have come to the conclusion that there's no way that Yeshua is divine, then I think there's a problem. Because if he's not divine, he has no way of having bought and purchased our salvation. If he's not divine, he's created. If he's created, he's in, he's finite, not infinite. How can a finite life give his life for many? He can't. He has one life, and it's finite. Only an infinite being can give his life for many. So I think for those who have studied it and those who are denying it, then I think that's a problem. And I think it could be that they're in a time of their life where they're they're going to eventually say, you know, I was wrong about that. Okay, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is all merciful, and he can lead us out of an error and back into the truth, and that's what we hope for and pray for. Okay, um, let's shift gears here. Uh, we did a show, Rob and I did a show, what, was that two weeks ago, three weeks ago? We asked this question, and I need to clarify, because some people wrote in, and, and obviously I was not um, as eloquent or as forthcoming as I thought I was in that show. The question that we asked was, do non-believing Jews believe in the same God as Christians? The answer that I thought that we portrayed was yes and no. Um, basically, the point is, is that um, I believe that especially when we look at modern uh, Judaisms that have incorporated lots of Kabbalism and those kind of things, the answer is absolutely not. Um, but I think that in all groups, when you make these very broad statements, there are people within those groups where the answer is going to be yes. Um, so the question that I would pose to you is the exact same question. Do non-believing Jews believe in the same God as believers? In my perspective, the primary issue in that question is to define belief. Uh, do... Should we say, let, let me change the question then. Hang on, I, I, I agree with you. Do non-believing Jews worship the same God as Christians? Well, let me play the same card. Okay. <laughs> I think you would have to define the word worship. <clears throat> Here's the point. If you have opportunity, which some of us have had, and uh, I've had uh, numerous opportunities, I thank the Lord for this, where I've actually sat down or, or stood and talked with a uh, observant Orthodox Jewish person who is very intent upon his uh, religion. If you sit and talk with them and say, on what basis is God going to give you his mercy and grace? In other words, I remember one conversation, and I'll try to be brief here, I said, let's start back with the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That covenant that he made included not only blessings, but cursings. So God is faithful to the people of the, the, the offspring of Jacob, to the people of Jacob or Israel. He is faithful to them when he is giving his blessing, but also when he is distributing the curses. So on what basis, I asked this person, on what basis are you saying that you will be enabled to receive his blessing and not his cursing? And his answer was, in, in brief, very clear, that if I keep the mitzvot, if I keep the commandments, if I, you know, regularly keep the festivals, if I eat kosher, if I go to synagogue, and so forth and so on. I said, okay. So... That means you believe that you have eternal blessing from God by what you're doing correctly. 
And he said, yes, absolutely. And he also said, because I'm Jewish. There is something that God has, God has chosen the Jewish people without choosing other people. And in those being chosen, he has given us an advantage. And he didn't use that term, but basically he said, you know, if you're Jewish or if you convert to Judaism, then you're one of his covenant people. I said, oh. I said, well, then uh, how come he exiled Israel out of the land into Babylon or into Assyria, <laughs> wherever? And uh, he said, well, because we were disobedient. I said, okay, how do you judge disobedience? And there be becomes the issue, okay? Now, if we, as we do, hold to the scriptures, it, it, what do we do with a verse, verses like John 15, 23 through 25? He, this is Yeshua speaking. He who hates me hates my father also. Now, what does it mean to hate? I don't think it means here that you have your fist in the air and you're you know, putting your, your fist in the face of God. No, hate and love in the scriptures can at times and very clearly at times, be related to a covenant connection, a covenant reality. When it says, Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have hated, it means I've made a covenant with Jacob, and I have not made that same covenant with Esau. So when it says, he who hates me hates my father also, it means, I take it to, under, uh, to understand it this way, he who has received me as the covenant maker and therefore is willing to entrust himself to my faithfulness. He who receives me receives the one who sent me, but he who does not receive me, he who rejects me rejects the Father also. If you read Isaiah chapter 1, what does God say to Israel in Isaiah 1 through the prophet? He says, and I'm paraphrasing, stop bringing your stinking sacrifices. They're a stench in my nostrils. Wait a minute. Didn't God command Israel to bring sacrifices? Yes. But what is he saying there in the first chapter of Isaiah and in many of the places in the prophets, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and so forth, and even in the 12 prophets? He's saying, if you're going to go down to this pagan temple and give some kind of worship to a pagan god who is really a demon, and then you want to come and worship me, the answer is no. You will be rejected by me. You will receive the curses of the covenant, which means you will be cut off from the covenant. What does it mean to be cut off? I wish somebody would write a book on that. Uh, to be cut off from the covenant means no longer to have a connection with the God of Israel as a covenant member. When Yeshua says, he who hates me hates my father also. He said, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in the Torah. They hated me without a cause. This is John 15, 23 through 25. Do we believe those are the words of Yeshua? Yes. So let me get back to the main question. Do religious Jews believe in the one God who is the creator in terms of saying we worship this one God and no other God? Yes. But do they have a belief that is true in terms of owning who God is and what he has said about sending his son, Yeshua. He who believes in the son has life. He who does not believe in the son of God does not have life, but the wrath of God continues upon them. So we're not saying that they're out and out idolaters. Well, so, but sometimes they are, right? Yes. I mean, when, yeah, when we look at... When we look at the Hasidic Jews, the, uh, uh, particularly the Hasidic movement, the idea of the, of the Tzaddik, the yeah. idea of these kind of things, and this, Metatron, is, Metatron. And Metatron, this is pure idolatry. This yeah. is not worshiping the God of Israel. This is worshiping a, a God of the nations. And to whatever extent so-called Orthodox Jews or very religious Jews, whatever you want, term you want to use, to whatever extent they imbibe that kind of a duplicity, then I think there is the clearly stepping over the line into idolatry. Right. They, of course, would totally deny such a thing. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that while they agree that there is one God who is the God who created uh, heaven and earth, 
they don't believe in him in any saving way. Right. And I, I'll just make one more point. Years ago, my wife and I were essentially visiting uh, the Reform Synagogue here in Tacoma. Um, we wanted to just see what it was like and, and so forth and so on. And it was uh, Simchat Torah, and the rabbi uh, made his comments after they read the first part of Genesis. And he stood and he said, and I can almost remember it verbatim, he says, I hope no one here is foolish enough to believe that there actually is a God who created the heavens and the earth. I couldn't believe my ears. And I talked with him afterwards, and I said, what do you mean by that? He said, oh, come on. This is just so much mythology that's part of the Torah. And so, now, that's an extreme, I recognize. Okay. But there can be those who are very religious in their Judaism and make themselves known in the community and so forth as a religious Jew and if you talk with them about what they truly believe, it's astounding. Right. Um, so I want to stay on this question, but I want to switch it now. This is something we didn't do in uh, the show that Rob and I did. Um, but this was a great question that came in from Daniel. Daniel, I'm, uh, Daniel wrote this email. I'm not going to read the whole email. I'm going to read three lines or three paragraphs from it give you a general gist, and then we can talk about it. He said, your re recent show about Christians and non-believing Jews worshiping different gods has prompted me to ask, do all Christians worship the same God? In the past, Rob has minimized the sacred name movement. I'm not exactly sure why he brings up the sacred name movement, but he says, however, I think it is key to answer the, this question. I mean by this that yod uh, yod -Heh is the one creator, revealer, sustainer, healer, and savior, which we learn of through the Hebrew and apostolic scriptures. Were you aware that Catholics believe that they worship the same God as Muslims? And he goes on, he, he actually makes some references, so on and so forth. So basically his question, and he wraps up this whole email by asking, do Catholics worship the same God that we worship? And before I throw this over to my father, uh, I will simply say I think the same answer applies as what the answer was for do, uh, towards non-believing Jews which is there are people within Catholicism, and I honestly believe this, who with a contrite and right heart believe that Yeshua has come, died for their sins, and they are saved, and God knows the heart, as my father said earlier. And so do I believe that there are people who, are, who worship the same God? Absolutely, within Catholicism. However, at that same point, are there people within any church, whether that's evangelical, whether it's Catholic, whether it's Lutheran, it doesn't matter, that are not worshiping the same God in terms of a saving faith or believing that they are doing something. Yes, I believe that there is that too. Um, now, can you take that and run with that? Yeah, I think the reality is, in my experience at least, in limited as it is, um, but I've had opportunity to speak with Roman Catholics throughout the years, and I would have to say that the majority of Roman Catholic, I would call these people who are regular attenders at at mass and are consider themselves to be part of the church in a very significant way because they're regular attenders, not just once a year or something, but they're regularly there. They don't really know what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Um, you know, when when we were when I was talking to one about uh, transubstantiation, do you really believe that the bread and the wine actually turn into the body and the blood of the Messiah uh, of of Jesus? And they said, no, we don't believe that. I said, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> right Maybe there. you don't, but the church yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and this is why they don't let a, any crumbs fall on the floor and so forth and so on. And they make a big, big point of it that way. So, uh, I, you know, and I, I said, do you also know or do you believe that only people who are members, true uh, baptized, baptized, consecrated members of the Roman Catholic Church are saved? They say, no. I said, well, the church teaches that. Now, I grant that the various uh, councils, church, uh, Roman Catholic councils and, and popes and so forth, have made some changes over what the historic Roman Catholic Church uh, held as substantial doctrine or essential doctrine. But I think that's my point, is that I think many go to church and feel the, the kind of the awe of, of a sacred moment and they don't really know what the church teaches, and they're not sure what they believe. Um, so I would agree with, with my son that there clearly are 
and could be those who within the Roman Catholic Church are truly saved. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is this is true across the board. Why do why does uh, why do the scriptures teach? He says, "Don't let many of you be teachers, brothers, knowing that you will incur the greater judgment." I think God's going to hold teachers very, very culpable for teaching falsehood and having people follow it. So I think as teachers, we need to be very careful. And yet, it is the individual who must seek out the Lord and must put his or her faith in God's Messiah, and the Spirit will lead them to the truth, as the scriptures say. So uh, we can't be judges of who is saved and who's not saved. We simply could say, as the scriptures tell us, that someone's life who does not bear the fruit of the Spirit, there's a question mark whether they're saved, but who knows? They can make, God can grant repentance at the very end of their life, too. And that could happen for anyone, Jew, exactly. Jew non-believing Jews, anyway, yeah. Yeah, exactly. um, So I'd be careful not not to put anyone up uh, not to put any one of us up as the judge. We leave it to God. On the other hand, we want to speak the truth and and encourage people to know the truth and to live the truth in terms of their faith. Um, Courtney says, wait, the Roman Catholic Church is saved, but Jews are not. I No, go back and listen to the conversation that we just had. That's not at all what we just said. Um, Randy wants to know if we would debate Michael from Inspiring Philosophy. I know Michael. I actually just had lunch with him recently. Um, no, <laughs> we don't debate. I'm not, that's not, that's not what we do. Um, okay. Uh, I think that, uh, so we actually have two more, uh, one question that was left on a, um, on a YouTube comment. And then, uh, we have an email and I think what we'll do is we'll address the comment. This is a, this is a flyby comment and it's really one that is not a very good question at all, but um, maybe it'll bring some good discussion. The other one is an email about tradition, and I think what we'll do is we'll save the one for tradition for Messiah Matters More so our uh, supporters can have a little extra content this week. So if you um, if you are one of our supporters, uh, please check the Messiah Matters More page, and uh, we'll probably have that up by the end of, the, of today. So here's the, the question that was a flyby question on YouTube. And um, I don't know if this is a serious question or not, I, I, <laughs> because it's, it's really, I, I just don't. Anyway, here's the question that was lo- uh, left. A person said, sometimes I wonder if any of you believe in salvation. Do messianics believe in salvation? I'd like an answer from someone who actually knows. So um, I think that this is, uh, I don't know if this is an actual question or not, but it can open up some discussion in terms of salvation. What do you think, uh, what would you say is the uh, Torah movement's belief of salvation? Do we believe in salvation? And go. Again, we have to define what we mean by salvation. If we mean that we are eternally saved, that when we die, or if Yeshua returns before we die, that we will be forever with him, and we will be, this mortal will put on immortality. In other words, death will be done away with, sin and sickness will be no more, sorrow, and we will live in uh, eternity with God, praising him and enjoying life with him forever. If that's what we mean by salvation— then clearly within the so-called messianic movement or Torah movement, there are many who hold that to be a reality and understand it to be entirely invested in faith in the work of Messiah. Not only the work that he accomplished in his death and resurrection and ascension, but the work that he continues in his intercession. Now, if you mean by salvation that everything goes good in life, there are some who believe that. (laughs) There's prosperity in in the messianic movement, too. Uh, the so-called prosperity gospel or prosperity doctrines. We don't hold that to be a biblical definition of salvation. Yeshua said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. But be well encouraged. I have overcome the world, Yeshua said. So um, uh, do we believe in salvation? Of course. But then defining what we mean by salvation is the issue. I think there's a good segment of the Torah who holds the biblical view that Yeshua is the only means of 
eternal salvation, meaning that our sins have been paid for, that we stand righteous before God, that's what justification is, and that God will indeed receive us unto himself eternally because of the atonement that Yeshua made on our behalf. Right, justification by faith. Right. And uh, I, as our new intro states, we at Torah Resource are unashamedly uh, holding to the doctrines of grace. So, um, yeah, not only do we believe in salvation, but we believe it's a gift from God, and we believe that, uh, yeah, I, I, obviously. I, I mean, I once again, I think that this comment was a flyby comment, but uh, it's it's always good to uh, hash these things out. Um, and finally, Joseph, for some reason, wants a definition of worship, and I think this is. Uh, an attempt to uh, bash those who say that the Torah is done away with. Uh, but, um, and I think the reason why is because he says earlier, in is not worshiping defined by obedience and keeping commands. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by taking this one. Yes, uh, I believe that worship is, is, uh, can be defined throughout many facets of our life. Obedience, um, praising, um, living out life unto God. Now, I know where this question can lead for many, and I'm not necessarily saying that this is where Joseph was going, but uh, the the uh, question that is then posed is, well, aren't Christians not worshiping the same God if they have rejected Torah? And I continue to say this, and I don't think it gets through to a lot of people, but I will say it once again. Those who believe that the Torah is done away with or that the Torah uh, does not need to be kept by believers anymore, that, that is, uh, that's the wording that they use, but that is not the theology they hold to. They, because if you ask a John Piper or an R.C. Sprawl or someone like that who has uh, taught that, that aspects of the Torah are no longer applicable to Christians— you ask them, are we supposed to love the Lord our God with all our, all our heart, mind, and strength? The answer is yes. Are we supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves? Yes. So that right there is the two greatest commandments of Torah. Now, I admit and fully agree that uh, John Piper and uh, R.C. Sproul will say that certain commands in the, in the Torah, uh, the application has changed. It's not that they believe that the Torah is actually done away with. They believe that the application of some, some commands have changed. Now, this comes down to interpretation, and it comes down to application. I'm not saying they're right. I'm not saying I agree with them, and I'm not saying that, it, that what they believe in is necessarily biblical either. But the idea that Christians have rejected the Torah and therefore worship a different God is simply false. John Piper and R.C. Sproul and all these guys, all these teachers... Most of them believe that you keep the Sabbath, but that it's been changed to Sunday. Now, I obviously disagree with this as, as well, but we're talking about a difference in application, not a difference in belief that we are to obey and love God. That would be my point. Do you want to say anything about that? Oh, I think you're, I think you're right on with that. And the problem with this idea that people are, some people are teaching that if you don't keep Torah, you're not saved, it comes back to saying, well, then salvation is based upon your obedience. Yeah. And the scriptures speak against that. They say obedience is the fruit of, of salvation. Now, if you see someone whose life has no fruit, then there's questions, but you still have to say that's up to God. But you, you say, well, how much fruit do you need? There are some Christians who keep Torah more than the people in the Torah movement. Right. Um, if you look, six things God hates, J7, <laughs> go look at those and see uh, they're in Proverbs and, and see what are the seven things he hates and see, you know, what that is. So I, I would absolutely agree, uh, Caleb, with what you said. We need to be very, very careful that we don't in our um, uh, in our desire to really emphasize the need and the beauty and the wonder of Torah in our lives. We have to be careful that we don't overemphasize it to the extent of making it a necessary work or a necessary obedience in order to be saved. We are saved by God's grace, by God's grace alone, and through faith in Yeshua. And the fruit of that is a change of life. Does your does one person's life change as quickly as another? Do they take on the obedience at the same rate? No. Why? I don't know. 
but there are those who lapse back. We all have done that. We've taken two steps forward and three steps back sometimes and the things that we've gotten ourselves into, and then we seek repentance. I keep saying this. Repentance is one of the true fruits of salvation because it's a gift from God. If we see people who claim to believe in Yeshua and their life is not uh, modeling it, and then we see them repenting, then what do we know? We know that the Spirit of God is active within them. So we have to wait for God to do the work and be used by him wherever possible uh, to, to help people turn from sin t- toward uh, obedience. But we cannot ever say that our salvation is, is based upon uh, our obedience. So let's actually, uh, you know, I, I answered for you uh, the question that Joseph asked, and I don't want to do that. Uh, can you please define what worship is? Well, in Hebrew, avad, the word we get evid from, avodah, is is the word to serve. It, it's an action word. Right. So you can't say that uh, you can't say that I worship God by sitting in a in a seat or a pew uh, for a you know forty minute service every week, and then going out and living in an entirely different no. We love God by keeping his commandments. We worship him. We show that we love him by serving him. How do we serve him? We serve him by being lights in this world and by uh, living our lives more and more in accordance with his righteousness. So by what strength do we do that? By our own strength? No. By the strength that he gives and by the renewal of the spirit and so forth. So it still is a matter of grace. It still is a matter of God's gift. And so, uh, you know, that worship clearly is a lot more than singing songs, a lot more than just speaking words. It is a lifestyle that is worship. Last but not least, one of the things that I want to plug here, for those who don't know, my father hosts a live online Bible study every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Um, He has just finished the book of Ephesians. Now, you can listen to these uh, to these Bible studies and get the notes archived. You don't have to sign up for the class to get the archived material. Um, however, if you'd like to join my father live on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, you can go and you can sign up on Torah Resource um, under, I believe it's under Institute, and the, it's the live Bible study. Um, if you want to join live, you, you have to sign up to join live, but you can sign up for free. It's totally free. You don't have to pay anything. Tell everyone, uh, you just finished with Ephesians. What are you going into next? We're going to go into the epistle of James. And I kind of debated back and forth uh, uh, as what to do, but um, James is a challenge. And that's, I like challenges, but it also is, uh, I think, one of the epistles that is so clearly uh, directed towards personal application of the truth, not that they aren't all, but Paul is often, oftentimes very theological, and we love that, and he lays the basis for it, and then the application comes from it. James tends to be talking, I think, quite a bit more in his epistle about how to live out the faith that uh, we have in Yeshua. So I'm, I'm excited about it, and I hope we'll have a good time. Um, so, and when does it start? Because they, there's a break right now for winter, uh, for winter break. When do you start back up? We normally would start the first Wednesday in January, but that happens to be New Year's Day. And we presumed that there were going to be people that were visiting friends and family and so forth. So we've uh, put it off a week. We're going to start on the 8th of January and it'll be Wednesdays from then on. There will be a list uh, there will be a schedule on the page itself, on the class page that you'll go to if you sign up for it, and you'll be able to see if th- there will be some Wednesdays we will take off because sometimes they coincide with a with a festival or something to that effect. Um, and if you have never joined one of these Bible studies before, um, but you've you've uh, downloaded or you've purchased uh, commentaries from Torah Resource and or the audio from the commentaries. Those are the studies. Those are the archive studies. So if you uh, go to Torah Resource, you can find some of the past Bible studies that my father did. He did a 217 lecture study on the book of Matthew, which turned into five volumes. He did a 53 uh, lecture study on the book of Galatians, which also turned into a commentary. He's done Romans, 99 lectures on Romans and a two-volume commentary. He did uh, first, second, and third John. He's done now Ephesians. He's done Hebrew. And now we get to go into James. 
All right, a big thank you to my father for joining me here on the first episode of the seventh season. I will be back next week, Lord willing, with uh, with Mr. Van Hoff, and I would encourage everyone to keep him in your prayers right now. He uh, would certainly appreciate your prayers uh, and for wisdom in uh, things that he is dealing with. We hope that this conversation has done a many things, but one of those main things is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, because Messiah matters. 